Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, we're entering into, uh, we've been in the last week of Jesus' life, and now we're entering into what's known as the Passion Narrative in Luke's Gospel. It takes up a large chunk of all the Gospels this last week of Jesus' life, and we'll um, be looking here at chapters 22 and 23 of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and then his eventual crucifixion. We'll be in Luke 22, 1 through 13 this morning. I failed to come up with an opening illustration, so I'll tell you the kind of illustration I was looking for. I was looking for an illustration about control in the midst of chaos. I always said that children's ministry was controlled chaos. When I used to work with that, that there's kind of kids everywhere and you have some sort of a rain on them, but at the same time it's everywhere. My thought was trying to think about what's something where it looks like everything is falling apart, but actually someone's in control. Maybe you've seen like a plate spinner on a stage, and it looks like they're all going to fall over, but this guy's like totally in control and has it all um, under control in his plans. I think about maybe people diving. You know, they these high dive, these platform divers, it just looks like they're spinning out of control. looks like chaos, but they're actually in control. It's kind of what I was driving for, because I think what's going on here in this passage is that there's, there's, it looks like things are falling apart in Jesus' ministry, that, that, that those who are against him are about to get the upper hand. But in actuality, Jesus is in full control of the whole situation. And so the big idea I want to give you this morning is that even in the midst of evil schemes, Jesus controls all things. It almost rhymes, but it doesn't quite. Even in the midst of evil schemes, Jesus controls all things. We've, we're going to see here the, the plots of the scribes and the, the treachery of Judas and the, the power of Satan. We're going to watch all of this, and, and it looks like things are spiraling out of control, but in the midst of this, Jesus and his Father have things completely under control. Everything is right where they want it. Jesus lives in submission to the Father. He lives in the confidence that God's going to accomplish his plan and his purpose, even if it means betrayal and arrest and a fake trial and death. And so, too, for us this morning, as we think about this control of all things, we can think about our lives, we can think about the world around us, and if we feel like it's all spinning out of control, uh, we can know that whatever is happening, whatever, whatever evil schemes, that Jesus is in control. Jesus has it all under control. He knows exactly what's going on. And it's, in fact, not out of control, but according to his divinely ordained plan. So let's read together in Luke 22. And I'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 13. Luke writes, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? 
He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So we're going to look at this passage in two parts. Um, verses 1 through 6, we're just going to call plans for evil. And verses 7 through 13, we're going to call it plans for good. We will spend much longer on the first point. So if you feel like, wow, he hasn't gotten to the second point yet, don't worry. The second point is much shorter. But we'll look at verses 1 through 6. And again, just plans for evil. We, we see four different factors, four sort of events or attitudes or actions that are all coming together to form some sort of a, a trap for Jesus. But it's a trap that Jesus is fully aware is, is forming. He knows exactly what's, what's going on here. So let's think about these four sort of things. The first one is the approach of the Passover. Uh, the approach of the Passover, verse 1, is very clear. Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, is is approaching. Um, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, if you're with us. But if you were not, Passover technically occurred the, the day before the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread would have lasted seven days, and Passover would have been the day just before that. Passover marked the night specifically when the Israelites were passed over by the angel of death. They had put the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, and they God delivered them from death in that moment. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread marked the exodus when they left Egypt and, and did not have any leavened bread because they were fleeing from Egypt. And they were, that marked that, that journey, uh, the journey of the exodus and also the beginning of their, their harvest season. There's another time marker in verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. There's some difficulty figuring out exactly the time and what days all these things were happening. Some people say there were different calendars that people were operating on, but, but all in all, what we see is that this is in the, the period of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's, if you think about that, it's this great day, the, the key day on the Jewish calendar, a day that marked deliverance, a day that marked salvation, a feast that was highlighted by the death of a lamb that brought about the deliverance of all of these, of Israel. And so the, the scene is set perfectly for what's going to happen in these days. The city of Jerusalem, we've said, would have been filled with people. This is a busy city in general, but on this, these eight days of festival, it would have been busting at the seams as everyone floods into Jerusalem to be there for the Passover. So you might think of Times Square in New York City. That's a busy place. But think about Times Square on New Year's Eve. I mean, that's insane. And that's kind of what, what, what Jerusalem would be like during Passover. Of course, it's not just one night. It's eight days. Um, and so the Passover is, is happening. So along with the, the approach of Passover, that's one factor. We see the second factor is the, the scheming of the scribes, we'll call it. The scheming of the scribes. We've seen this tension between the chief priests and the, and the scribes that's been mounting throughout the book of Luke. It seems to have come to a head in chapter 20. You remember all these direct confrontations that keep coming to Jesus with questions and he keeps answering them and he starts asking questions himself and so it's all sort of coming to a head and now it says they're, they're not it says they were seeking how to put him to death so they're no longer talking about 
if they're going to put him to death. They're just figuring out how they're going to do it. Um, this is not like mode of execution, but rather how are we going to pull this off without causing a scene among this mass of people in Jerusalem? Because remember, everyone loves Jesus at this moment. I mean, everyone is completely enamored with who he is. They're hanging on his every word. They're they're waiting for him to take his place as the Messianic king. Remember, he rode in on this donkey. They're expecting something big. And we just end ended chapter 21 where it says, Early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. He comes into the city every day, goes into the temple, and everyone's like, where is Jesus? Because we want to hear what he has to say. So the scribes are saying, we can't just grab him in broad daylight. This is not going to go well for us. Either we'll cause a riot, or the people are just going to love him more, or they're going to hate us, or all of the above is going to happen. We just, we can't, it's not going to work. So they kind of maybe seem like nothing can really be done, at least for now. Maybe they'll wait till after the Passover is over. Things have died, died down a little bit. But then, but then something else happens, sort of behind the scenes. So we see the approach of the Passover and the scheming of the scribes. But then we see the entrance of Satan. Satan hasn't been mentioned much. We've seen the casting out of demons, but since the temptation in the wilderness, we haven't heard much from Satan, but he's been active. The, st- the statement in verse um, 3 is simple. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So the scribes are not the only ones who want to snuff out the light of the world. Since Satan first tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he's he's been active. And now he's making this sort of decisive move to bring about the death of Jesus. He He infiltrates into the company of those that are closest to Jesus. He gets in to Judas. Now Judas is still culpable. Judas is still responsible for his actions. But whatever seeds of rebellion and betrayal were in Judas's heart, when Satan enters in, it's as if they are heightened. And, and the boldness that comes with that. And he moves to betray him. He goes to the chief priests and the officers. Those who would have been in charge of the temple is probably what that refers to that word officers Um, and they together discuss how Judas can betray Jesus and deliver him into their their hands and the emphasis again is on what it's on secrecy look at verse 6 it says that they want him to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd so they're looking for an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd they they want there to be as little disturbance as possible this is a, a public relations thing right we want to make sure that we do this and that it's not all over the papers, that there's no uprising, that we don't know, that no one really knows what happens. It just sort of happens and then they find out what, whatever happened to Jesus. But that, that's the goal here. And so verse 5 tells us how the Jewish leaders felt about Judas showing up on their doorstep. They were glad. I mean, they, they are, they are thrilled. They have racked their brains trying to figure out how can we get him and not destroy ourselves and they're ready to to give up and then suddenly Judas walks in and says I'll get him for you I'll I'll do it I'll I'll hand him over to you in secret so remember Judas is culpable he's responsible for his actions but you see the work of Satan here don't we just just pause for a moment think about this there's there's evil in our own hearts our flesh lashes out on evil and there's evil in the world but let's not forget that there are demonic forces, there are evil powers in this world that are working against God's plan and will. 
Jesus and 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 those who follow they're they're following him and and Satan is working against they, Satan demonic forces are are active in this world they're influencing they're opposing God they're doing it in secret ways they recognize the evil intentions of people's hearts just as Satan recognizes the evil in Judas's heart and seek to intensify that to fan it into a flame they love secrecy they love Underhanded plots, they love closed doors, they love betrayal, they love disloyalty. And they will seek that out, these demonic forces in this world. Satan rejoices in finding those who are close to Jesus and finding some way to bring them away from Jesus. Let's get you out of close company with Jesus and have you betray him. But just remember, there are satanic, demonic forces in this world that are working against the plan of God. Peter was there. Peter saw it. Peter knew Judas. He was right there. And Peter watched this whole betrayal thing happen. And Jesus himself said to Peter, Peter, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. But Peter knew about this whole thing. And what does Peter say to us in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9? He says, listen, be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and he devoured Judas Peter tells us resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world got to remember that Satan is not simply active here but he is continuing to act to be active everything's coming together the the approach of Passover we've got um, the scheming of the scribes you've got the entrance of Satan and then this final factor, we'll call it the, the greed of Judas. The greed of Judas. It, it's hard to know what's going on in Judas's heart. What, what's, what's making him want to betray Jesus? Some people speculate that maybe he's trying to force Jesus' hand. Meaning that he recognizes that, that Jesus is not going to take the throne like they all expect him to. He's kind of catching wind of that whole thing. So he figures, what if, what if we kind of make him? What if I organize these troops and then when they show up, he's forced to sort of flex his muscle and take the throne like we want him to? I don't know. Is that going on in Judas's heart? Maybe. I know for sure what's going on in his heart is greed. Because that's what we're told. Um, in the book of John, days before this happens, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with some expensive perfume. And this is what John says about Judas' response. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John says, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. Isn't that interesting? So some people would say that the money in verse 5 is some sort of afterthought. Judas says he'll betray them, betray Jesus, and they say, well, we'll give you some money for it. I don't know. I think Judas went in looking for money. I'm going to get something out of this if I'm going to do it. So he, he comes in, and, and he has other reasons maybe, but, but money is at least one of them. And he comes in, and he meets with people dead set on killing Jesus, and he says, 30 pieces of silver, I'll do it. There's a price to Judas's loyalty to Jesus. So all of these things sort of come together in the sovereign plan of God, and they form this 
this trap that's going to catch Jesus. So he's going to be put on trial and he will eventually be killed. And yet in all of this, we know that God is in control. That nothing is happening outside of his, his plan, that he's fully aware he's even orchestrating all of these events. Hear these words of Peter again, this time on the day of Pentecost. He preaches and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up how? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. How was he delivered up? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. <coughs> and so Peter holds this thing in tension. Listen, this was according to God's plan, and you guys did it, and you're responsible for it. So there's this human responsibility, but yet there's also this divine plan that is that is happening, that God is working all these things out and bringing good out of it. Doesn't that give us confidence in life? That no matter what the schemes of man are, no matter what the work of Satan is, no matter what even our own greed is, God can turn all things for his glory and for our good. No one has ultimate control other than God. So let's just remember that, right? The Supreme Court does not have ultimate control in this world. God does. People with guns do not have ultimate control in this world. God does. There is no force of evil. There are no schemes of wicked people. There are no plans of Satan. There is no greed that ultimately has control in this world. God has control, and God actually takes all of those things that are perceived as evil, and he turns them for good. He's going to take everything, and he's going to turn it for good for his children and for his own glory. I think that's the main thrust of this passage, but I think it would be good to take a sidetrack here and to think about Judas for a minute. What's going on with Judas? And, and the reason to think about Judas is because there's some Judas in all of us. Is that we are like Judas. Very easily we can be just like him. So, I, I don't think all this happened overnight for Judas. And so I want to ask some questions maybe to probe and to understand what's the Judas in us. Okay? So here's four questions. Um, and uh, I invite you to think about them and allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart as I'm trying to let him search mine. It's been convicting to think about the Judas in me this week. Here's the first one. Am I going places I would want no one to find out about? Am I going places I would want no one to find out about? Can you imagine Judas walking down the streets of Jerusalem, sort of zigzagging, creating some sort of path so no one knows where he's going, looking behind him all the time, Maybe he's got a hood on or something. He, he doesn't want anyone to know where he's at. And we can look at that and we can see that's deceptive. Judas is, is a shady character. But don't we act the same way sometimes? Don't we find ourselves going places and hoping that no one finds out that we went there? You know, it might be small at first. It might grow, though. What are the ways that we are being deceptive in that same way? Maybe you... You know, you you want to buy something, but you buy it with cash. You don't want it to show up on your credit cards. You don't want anyone else to know that you've got that. It could be something simple. Maybe you're going to buy a donut. You just don't want that to show up. It could be something worse. Maybe you're out of town. 
and you end up someplace that you would never be otherwise. And you're looking around. Does anyone here I know? You start saying, what am I doing in this place? Does everyone need to know where you're at at all times? No. But what if they did? (laughs) What if they did? Would that be a cause for you to be ashamed, for me to be ashamed? In our society, maybe you don't physically go somewhere. We could we could go to your mind. You could think about where do I go in my mind? In our age of technology, my goodness, where do I go on the Internet? What are the apps that I'm using I don't want anyone to know about? What's the history that I'm erasing on my Internet browser? What kind of trail am I trying to cover? There's a bit of Judas in all of us, isn't there? We don't want to be a little secretive. But we can't keep our deception hidden forever. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Nothing is secret. Nothing can stay secret before God, especially in our day and age, right? Just ask anyone running for president. If you've got a secret, someone will find it out. You know, we can't keep it hidden forever. I think about a song that I sang in Sunday school. Do you remember this song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then there's that line. Oh, be careful, little feet where you go. And then the line says, for the Father above is looking down. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? But what does it say? He's looking down in love. So be careful. Don't go places like that. God is in our lives for our good. The Father sees all and he looks down in love on all. Don't go places that you know you wouldn't want people to find out you. Don't go places because you know that God knows you're there. My friend Todd said one of the greatest lies we believe is, I'm alone. And we're never alone. Whether that's because we're not comforted or because we think that no one will know what we're doing. So exposing this Judas heart, do I go places that I want no one to find out about? Second question, am I joining in and rejoicing with those who are opposed to God? Am I joining in and rejoicing with those who are opposed to God? Jesus had warned his disciples frequently to beware, to watch out for the scribes and Pharisees. And where's Judas? Shaking hands with the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus told him not to do that. And not only that, they're rejoicing at the same thing. They are glad and Judas is glad. We should be careful when we find ourselves agreeing with and rejoicing with those who are opposed to God. When those who hate God like us. Now, I'm not saying don't be friends with sinners. Jesus was friends with sinners, for sure. But we need to be aware of joining with those who want to overthrow Christ and overthrow our love for him. Kids, youth, be careful who your friends are. We need to watch out. We need to love all people, for sure. But we should be careful that we're not becoming close friends with those who want to drag us away from loving Jesus and from following God. We want to be friends with those that would encourage our walk with Christ. That, that, that wouldn't work against that, but would, would love us for that. And for all of us, who, who are we agreeing with? Are we identifying with people that are opposed to Christ and his gospel? Or do we take joy in people that, that push against the work of God in this world? Let's just be careful with that. I'm reminded of the scene... I go back to the same well all the time, but the scene of uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, where where George Bailey is in Mr. Potter's office. I mean, the 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 meanest guy in the world, right? And and he's offering him a job. 
because George Bailey's running out of money. And and they make some sort of like temporary deal. And George Bailey reaches across Potter's desk and shakes his hand. And there's this beautiful scene where Jimmy Stewart is playing George Bailey sort of like looks at his hand as he pulls it back. Who am I shaking hands with? And you watch him and he he wipes it off on his on his sports coat. He's, what am I doing making deals with this guy? And then he has this great Jimmy Stewart riff. What am I doing? You know. But that's how we need to think. We need to sometimes say, who am I shaking hands with? Who am I agreeing with? Who am I rejoicing with? Do I really want to be shaking hands with them? Am I joining, hand, joining in and rejoicing with those who are opposed to God? Third, am I being influenced by greed? Hasn't this been Luke all over the place? Am I being influenced by greed? Jesus has warned us about the dangers of money. And what does Judas do? He gets caught in greed. Sells his loyalty. What about us? Are you willing to sell your integrity? Are you willing to sell your allegiance to Christ? Is there a, a price on your commitment? Will you lie and dishonor God in order to gain money? Will you do something underhanded? Will you kind of cook the books just a little bit? Tell a light, white lie here or there to make some more. Will you remain blind to the needs of others so that you can fulfill your own needs? Do we walk integrity in integrity in all of our financial dealings, or are we greedy? You know, Judas started small, didn't he? He's taking change from the disciples' common purse. That's all that's happening. And then suddenly, he finds himself taking money from the scribes and Pharisees to betray Jesus. It all starts small. We need to beware of all forms of greed and all forms of deception with our money. Here's the fourth one. Final one. Am I betraying the trust of those who love me? Am I betraying the trust of those who love me? Judas's betrayal was primarily against Jesus. But was it not also against the other eleven? And, and, and anyone else who he had met along the way who was a follower of Jesus? And Judas, in this moment, chooses to seek his own desires to the detriment of anyone else who loved him and anyone else who had, had invested in him for his good. Yes, it's this sin takes us down the, this path of exalting self and condemning others. It, it's it's big and small. You might be stealing money from your parents to to buy drugs. You know we hear about that that it gets that bad. But you might be just robbing your kids of time because you want to be entertained. It's selfish. I just want to do what I want to do, and so I'm not going to invest in my in my kids. I struggle with that. It could be breaking your marriage covenant. Could just you're not a good friend. You don't invest in the lives of others. Am I being self-centered? Am I am I hurting those who love me most? People that care for me. Are my actions alienating and betraying them? Well, we've all got a bit of Judas in us, don't we? We have all gone places that we shouldn't have gone. We've rejoiced with the enemies of God at times. We've sold our allegiance to Jesus for the love of money. We've betrayed the trust of those who love us. But thanks be to God that Jesus never did one of those things. And and my standing before Jesus is not rooted in whether or not I have done those things, but it's rooted in the fact that Jesus never did. That Jesus lived his life openly before all. Jesus ate with sinners. And he went to places that were considered shady, and he did it with no guilt and no shame, and he did it openly before anyone and everyone. He was never seeking to cover his tracks, ever. He never rejoiced in evil. He never rejoiced with the wicked, but he always saw through them and exposed their sins and lovingly sought to see them one 
to salvation. Money, money never held Jesus' heart. It was never a motivation for him. His motivation was always to please the Father. He never betrayed anyone who loved him. He never betrayed anyone who hated him. He never betrayed Judas. Up until the bitter end, he was faithful to his friends. Isn't that encouraging? We're not saved by our loyalty. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by faith in Christ. Because Jesus obeyed the Father fully, even unto death. So I ask, have you have you come to Christ in repentance and faith? Repenting of the Judas tendencies in you. Of the ways that you have spurned God. The, the one who created us, who made us. Who we owe our allegiance to. Have you rejected him? And have you repented of that? And confessed that sin against God? And then come to him and said, I, I am Judas. And I'm sinful and I can't do anything right. And, and I can't earn my salvation. But Jesus never did any of those things. Jesus was perfect. And I come in faith because Jesus died to pay the price for my betrayal. And Jesus lived to give me his righteousness. And that is our hope. Our hope is not to try harder. Our hope is to trust in Christ and to find salvation in him. And, and if that's true, if we are in Christ, then we're going to root out all these Judas tendencies because we love Jesus, right? We don't want to betray. I don't want to be Judas. I don't want to betray Christ. So let me encourage you. Confess these tendencies to someone that you trust. That, that's what this, the, the purpose of, of church in part is, is to, to open our lives to one another. We want to help one another to have freedom in Christ. Don't let that deception that's small now grow into something big. Find ways to bring light into the dark places of your heart and life. Find someone that you're accountable to. In this day and age, if you're a guy, you need accountability software on your computer. Every single one of us needs this. If you don't know what that is, then talk to me. We can't live in the darkness in this place. Don't hide your financial dealings from other people. Don't be the only person that looks at your bank account. You need someone else that knows where you're spending your money. If we don't live in the light, then the darkness is slowly going to creep in and it's going to crush our hearts. And we're going to find ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in places that we never expected. Talking to people and rejoicing people that we never thought we would. Taking money that we know that we should and hurting people that love us the most. God's desire is our, is for our good. And the Father above is looking down in love. So we've got to be careful about what we're doing. Watch out. Judas is in us. So we see these plans for evil. But look with me briefly as we close at the plans for good. The feast is in full swing in verse 7. We mentioned the city's full of people. It's, it's, it's not just... Filled with people walking around, but people that are preparing, people in the marketplaces, people bustling in in these days that are prior to the feast. Everyone's preparing for the rituals and the customs that surround Passover, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, they're buying lambs and, and bitter herbs and, and the, the smell of unleavened bread being baked everywhere. Families are, are reuniting. The children are being told, go clean up the house, get all the leaven out of here. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, everything's going on. And even, as Judas and the scribes are preparing to capture Jesus, Jesus is preparing. He's preparing for his final meal with his disciples. He's making preparations. These verses, they remind me of chapter 19. Remember when, when they get the donkey? Does, doesn't it sound similar where Jesus sends them off and sort of these enigmatic instructions, go look for a guy, 
you know, you'll see him do the sign, and then you'll know here's the password to get the donkey. It's kind of that sort of thing, isn't it? And so he's he's prepared. Some of this, I think, is um, is shows Jesus's preparation that he actually talked to someone, probably. But some of it is just his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things, you know. So he tells them, you know, you're going to go to the city, and and you're going to find this guy that's carrying water on in a jar. And and all the commentators say that that would have been odd that men would have carried them in, in skins, not in, in jars. So we'll take their, their word for it. So it's an odd thing, and they find this guy, and they ask him about this guest room, and they go up, and it's all furnished, it's ready to go for all 13 of them to be there. So Jesus is, is preparing for this. He wants it to be somewhat secretive, I think, because he doesn't want Judas capturing him before that, or at that. That would have been the ideal time. Everyone's in their house. The whole city is indoors for the meal. And so if Judas knows exactly where they're going to be, then he's just going to go there probably. But Jesus sends Peter and John, you guys take care of it and we'll show up at the last minute so Judas can't do anything about it. Maybe, could be. But he's making all these these, these preparations and, and it says in verse 13, everything happened, just as he said. Just as, as Jesus had told them, they get there and they, they prepare the Passover. And as they're doing it, Peter and John, they're preparing this meal. They're unaware of Judas's plan. They're, they're unaware that that night Jesus is going to be arrested. They're unaware that, that they could probably count the time and hours as to, to when exactly, um, how much longer they have with Jesus. But he is fully aware, isn't he? Jesus is, is fully aware. He's, he's more than aware. He is orchestrating. Jesus is arranging things and all of these things are like dominoes and Jesus is placing every single one of them. He knows exactly what is going on. Not only does he use evil to bring about good, but God is actively accomplishing good things in our lives. So think about that. It's not just that God uses evil. God is also has purposes for our good. He is working for our good. He is making preparations for us. Jesus is preparing things for us. He's preparing to bless us with, with good things. You know, maybe you do a lot of preparation. You're preparing things to bless others. My wife prepared lunch for today. You prepare food for potluck. We prepared an outreach on Tuesday night. Jake prepared a message to share on Thursday night. You prepare your home to welcome people with hospitality. You prepare to meet friends and encourage them. And Jesus prepares the meal for his disciples. Preparation can be a pain, can't it? But it can be a joy. I think Jesus models in a sense that we can prepare to bless others and, and, and that that is modeling what Christ does. That as we are working for the good of others, we are like Jesus because Jesus is working for your good and for my good. He has plans for us. He's preparing this meal to bless his disciples. He's preparing to lay down his life for them. What's he doing even now? He's preparing a place for us. He's working for our good. He's not just kind of trying to clean up all the bad things. He does do that. He turns them all for good in amazing ways. But even the good in our lives, Jesus is preparing that. He's working for our good. So let's do this. Let's leave with confidence, okay? We can leave with confidence that any evil that comes to us 
any wickedness that would happen, any way that this world comes against us in any way, that God is turning it for good. Total confidence of that. Whatever happens, God is using it for good. And let's also leave with this knowledge, that God is actively seeking our good. He's looking for what's best for us. He loves us. And let's reflect that. Let's reflect that that way that God is seeking good for us by seeking good for others, but by loving others, by by preparing things for others for their good. Let's just take a moment of silence and reflect on on God's word, um, and then I will close this in prayer and we'll end with a song. But let's take a moment of silence to reflect. Father, your word says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. We don't fear wickedness, God. We don't fear Judas in our lives. We don't fear the evil that can come against us, Lord. We fear you. But we we know that you work all things according to the counsel of your will. Lord, thank you for that truth in the midst of heartache, and in the midst of blessing, God, we know that you are the one that's preparing. You are the one that is working for our good, doing good things for us, God. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the ultimate good that we see in Christ, that you have worked for our salvation and brought it about. Lord, pray you would um, help us to, to live in light of these truths. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.